Welcome to Machine Learning on the Road. This week's been a pretty interesting week. Uh, did a lot of data camp on statistics part one and uh, also uh, resumed my programming in Flutter and uh, was able to get um, a prototype up and working on the server. And that was really uh, interesting process because what I had to do is, uh, first of all, when you're doing your development, I do my development on a uh, MacBook Pro and uh, use uh, Visual Studio Code. And, uh, and then I run my web API and database on um, IIS. So my database was uh, SQL Server and then I use IIS for the web server. And uh, so what I did is uh, I wanted to be able to do um, cross-origin transactions so I could uh, test my API. And, and, uh, and what I was finding was there's two ways to do it in .NET Core 3.0. And so I, I actually upgraded to 3.1. But um, so what uh, you do is uh, um, in your configuration, you can set up your course policy. And, uh, and uh, what it does is it, by default, course is uh, cross origin. Uh, it uh, has a couple of verbs that it allows, which are get and put, post. But put and delete are not um, active, and so you can't uh, you can't uh, uh, do those transactions. Uh, but what I had to do is I had to tell Web API to use the course policy, so you can create a course policy uh, in your startup.cs and then uh, in your controller, you can enable that course policy on the controller. So um, th then um, uh, if that's one, t that's the first technique and to do it. The second technique is to, uh, is to use a web config. Now by default, if you don't have a web config in your uh, project, your web API project when you deploy it to the server it will generate a web config for you automatically uh, so what I did is I wanted to control that because I wanted to put in my cores in there and uh, and I wanted to put my verbs that I was going to allow and uh, it's going to allow you can control which uh, servers you want to allow cores to Cross, uh, cross origin, uh, and if you just use the wildcard star, then it'll allow it any any IP address. Or if you want it to just be a specific server, like server to server, you can specify which server or list of servers. Um, so I wanted that to be in my web config. So I added a web config, and then when I deployed it. Um, it, it used that web config and then I was able to get my um, my 
my transactions um, I get my my post to work but I was having some problems with put and so I worked around with that and uh, I was using Fiddler to talk to the API and I could see that I was getting a 405 error which is a security denied and it was saying that uh, it didn't recognize the header so th what it happens is is uh, you make a request the server sends back um, if the server sends back to the browser the header um, it'll acknowledge it and then it'll allow the transaction but if it doesn't send back the proper header then it will uh, deny the browser will deny access so it's on the browser side that actually the access is denied so um, then uh, I started working with that and I finally got the everything working so my put would work with Fiddler but I was having, there was some sort of problem with the proxy. And I started thinking, well, maybe I needed to, in my dark code, I needed to set up a, find the proxy. And so I started playing around with the HTTP client looking for the proxy on the client side. And uh, wasn't successful there. And I looked at a lot of the web examples and I just didn't see anything where, they were talking about you know having to set up a proxy on the on the dark client so I decided that that wasn't probably a good idea and uh, um, to uh, just continue my uh, working with the server so then I got the idea well what I needed to do is um, deploy my <coughs> flutter app and put it on the server where my web API was. And so what I did there is you can, um, you can't just copy your, your files to the web server where you're, uh, uh, you want it to run and then, and then, uh, and then do your API calls to set up your first, your default. So you, it, by default, it's going to look through a list of different types of files. Like it's going to look for index.html, default.html, default.asp, etc. There's a list of them that it's going to look through. Um, you, you can't just do that. You have to put the files in wwroot, and and this is not on the server. This is in your Visual Studio project, you have to put the files there and and then let uh, Visual Studio deploy those files to the web server. Then the API can pick it up and use it. And uh, I found that uh, I found that process really interesting because it was, uh, I, re I read a couple of Stack Overflow where they were saying, yeah, you gotta put, put it in WW root. And I was thinking that they were talking about the server so I was like, I don't have a www root on my server because I'm not sitting at the, I'm sitting at a virtual server, not at the root server level. And putting it in the root server level, I won't have visibility to it. So it was very confusing at first. And then I realized, I don't know, I just calmed down and I realized that what they were talking about was in the project. And then I copied over my Flutter build web 
files under my build web directory on Flutter side. And <clears throat> the first what I did is I put it, I created a directory called views and I was thinking I'll just put it under there and, and then it'll be nice and organized. I don't have a, you know, all these uh, icon directory, NASA directory. I won't have that uh, popping up in the wrong places. And, and, you know, in my project, I'll have it all under one nice directory. So I, I did that at first, and then it, and then I was getting some JavaScript errors, and I thought, well, geez, what, what's causing these JavaScript errors? You know, it's just working like a, it's just a structure. I just copied the whole structure over on underneath the on the build, and then I realized, well, I've I've got a path that it's having is looking for. I'll just get rid of that path. I'll move that directory, and I'll just drop my files uh, in there, and. Uh, and then I, I ran it, and uh, it uh, it seemed to work. And so I was really excited. That was my big breakthrough for the week with Flutter and Web API. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and I'm going to uh, start working with creating uh, professional-looking fonts and styles. And that's one of the nice things about uh, Flutter programming over Angular is that you don't have any CSS. And because you don't have CSS, you can program basically your whole CSS styles in using uh, different uh, components like uh, text style, and and then you can get a, your own look and feel. And so I have a feeling feeling that those text style files uh, that there will be a thousand, if not millions, of those different styles that people will port from CSS over to to Dart, and then you can you can have a, a general theme that you can load into your whole system, uh, and you can switch those themes uh, at runtime if you want. So, uh, real powerful in in that sense. And one of the nice things I like about uh, Dart over Angular is that its organization is a little as much simpler you don't have lots of uh, layers like you don't have directives and you don't have uh, components that are being built in uh, in uh, html and you don't have this mixture of html and code you just have widgets and and so you can stack widgets uh, like you can have containers and containers can have columns and columns can have rows and you know you can encapsulate a tree hierarchy and you can create the different behaviors but that's the hard part is that you know you're a lot of ways as you're doing the, this programming you're kind of still thinking like html well if i have a div then i can put you know a style on that div and i'm going to have i'm going to have it be responsive so that if my devices are changing size that it's uh, you know my UI's uh, responding accordingly. You know, you know it's adjusting from maybe three columns to two columns, or it's uh, adjusting down to one column. And those things are all great. Um, however, it's not as intuitive, I think, yet in in uh, Dart how to do that. But I'm sure that once I learn how to do responsive programming in Dart, it'll make sense. Um, then so as far as programming, it looks a lot like an application program. I think Dart's going to be super popular 
for the fact that a lot of developers are going to uh, switch over off of uh, Angular and move to Dart because it, it has more of an application feel. And because it has a, that application feel, uh, it's, you're going to be able to scale your UIs up much, much larger and faster um, than Angular. And I do, do think the Angular is moving this way. You know, if it's all a product from Google, and so, you know, Angular has its components, it has its reactive programming. You can do re reactive programming in Dart also with Rx Dart, something to, to look at. Something that's uh, on my list of things to build uh, data streams in, in Dart. And so I have a, uh, more of this reactive type of programming. All right, so that's, that's what I did in, in uh, Flutter this week. I thought you'd like to know. But uh, switching back to uh, DataCamp, I've been studying uh, data science. And the reason why is uh, I'm looking to, the data is the new gold, so uh, understanding your data is critical. <clears throat> so I went back and started into statistics because I didn't take statistics in college. I looked at them and uh, I was trying to understand why in business that they were putting such a huge emphasis on quantitative analysis and uh, but it never really had any exposure to it even in high school and and so you know I wish that that was more of a mainline mathematics course I had a lot of exposure to geometry algebra calculus not much to physics and I wish I had more exposure to physics and uh, and statistics especially statistics because of you know what you can learn from uh, that discipline. So anyway, I took a course on it in uh, data camp and really liked it, especially the binomial. I remember my daughter uh, talking about binomials and uh, I uh, was like, well, you know, I don't remember, you know, really about binomial, but uh, she was really kind of frustrated about you know how it works but what way a binomial works is uh, it's really quite simple if you take a if you take a random generator you start with a random generator and uh, and you can do this in Python and and you're looking for a random number between 0 and 1 and uh, so the random generator will produce a number between 0 and 1 and then based on that you can uh, if you can apply that to Let's, let's say you're flipping a coin, heads and tails. If it's less than 0.5, then you've got heads, otherwise it's tails. So you put it in a, a for loop and then you uh, average it out or and, and you count the number of heads and a number of tails. And, and that gives you a distribution and then you can put that distribution into a histogram and, uh, and you can watch that, that probability change uh, through different cycles. So if you want repeatability on, on the, that distribution, you put uh, a seed value, and that seed value then will allow you to repeat it. So th that's great. So next thing you want to do is there's a, a function called the Bernoulli function. So Bernoulli, uh, he was looking at odds, distribution odds. Interesting enough, there were, there were uh, 
there was a device called the Bernoulli device that iOmega created. And I wonder if they used the Bernoulli algorithms for the distribution of the data that was stored on that device. It'd be really interesting to know that. Uh, however, I don't know, so I'll, I won't go into that. But uh, so if the way Bernoulli works is you pass in a number and then a probability. And if it's uh, if it it uh, is less than that probability, then you have a success, and it counts those number of successes. And then it's it's uh, using a uh, random generator uh, to do the the comparison. And so you're you're, you're going to run n number of of loops, and you're going to then check against that probability to see how many successes you have and then you return that back uh, and then you divide you can use that then to calculate the probability of loss now where that got kind of exciting is in the data camp they said well let's look at uh, 100 banks and let's look at a default rate of point uh, and figure out what the loss will be. Well, at 2% default, the loss was fairly low. I mean, it was like 3 or 4%. But uh, then I, I coded it out and uh, put all the functions into my Jupyter Lab and ran it. And I used the junk bond default rate of, of 12%. And that had a, a much higher percentage of loss and it jumped up to 78% chance of loss and then I started thinking about well, why is it that at 12% default that the system has such a high percentage of loss and it has to do with the odds or and probably the distribution of those losses over the whole system so one of the ideas that he proposed is why the binomial uh, was a major breakthrough in statistics is they could simulate the system. So they didn't have to go get historical data to make the prediction. They could just simulate the system using random uh, numbers and watch the distribution of that system to make predictions on uh, what would happen. So that what that tells me is that in reality, we can do. We can learn a lot of things in data science from simulation, and that was the big uh, aha moment: is realizing that uh, that simulation could yield uh, answers, hidden answers, uh, to the way the world works. So you could feed into uh, the simulation things like the junk bond market. And you know, the junk bond market defaults. At 12% every uh, every decade, so somewhere in the decade there will be a default rate of 12%, and that's just due to the fact that there's so much speculation, lots of bad investments, a certain amount of time that uh, uh, the debt is uh, is allowed to accumulate uh, before default occurs, and and. 
So, the, and the reason why it takes a, such a long time for defaults to occur is because they stack the debt. So they borrow, they get more, they, they sell off one set of bonds, or excuse me, they, the bonds are sold um, and money raised. And uh, does this money then is uh, then given to, or, or loaned to the banks or to the companies. And the companies then use that money to grow their business. And then they have a certain repay period. And when that repay period occurs, then they go borrow more money to repay it. So it just kind of stacks up and the debt gets larger and larger to some point that it can't be sustained anymore. And if the company doesn't have enough acceleration in its growth, then it, it, uh, it dies out. So that's always the risk of a startup is that you, you have a, in those first uh, 10 years, 90% of those businesses will die out. But the 10% that do survive move into maturity and they get bigger and then they start to displace or disrupt the established uh, businesses. So that's kind of the value of innovation is that uh, newer products and newer services can dis uh, disrupt uh, existing establishments and then create a new, uh, a new level of products and services. When we saw that with AT&T, I mean, they controlled the telephone and then you saw the emergence of of uh, breakup of AT&T into smaller units and then then you saw uh, cell phones became very popular. Now everyone has a cell phone. I use a cell phone right now to do my podcast. And uh, then that allowed the uh, usage of the traditional telephone line to decline. Then, you, then there were companies that were innovating in voice over internet and uh, taking more of the telephone market share. And so the ownership of towers would be interesting to uh, learn who owns most of the towers. Did the traditional telephone companies then begin buying uh, cell phone towers and become a utility renting out those cell phone towers to the different vendors like Verizon and Sprint and T-Mobile, where they, um, did they have that foresight to anticipate this disruption and then capitalize on the disruption. So that would be interesting to know. And I'm sure that they're in the day of internet uh, where you have lots of data now that's becoming publicly available that that research could be done if you could uh, get the, the data and then uh, extract the, the information you want and aggregate it. Let's go back to junk bonds, you know. In 2008, we, with the mortgage-backed security breakdown, we were surprised to find out that uh, junk bonds had bought commercial paper and that uh, commercial paper was, and, and especially money markets, were being affected by the decline in value in commercial paper, which is a uh, phenomenon that never occurred in, in history, in financial history. And so, uh, right now, we have trillions of dollars that uh, are going in loans, lots of money that's out in the market, 
it's going negative. And so the question is, is why is it going negative in terms of the payouts? And it's because there's too much, uh, there's too much debt. And that's a bad sign. That's a bad warning sign on the junk bond market that, uh, that it could collapse. Uh, meaning that as defaults start to rise due to Corona, that, uh, uh, that there will be more of this systemic, uh, loss. And so what we could do is we could use a support vector machine to predict what, uh, why it's going in these negative rates and predict at what point the negative rates start to cause increased defaults and then based on those percentages feed them into the binomials network to make predictions on the loss percentages running it across all the different companies on the so we could do a total count of all the companies that were in the system and uh and then uh calculate what the loss for all those companies on the system are based on the default rates that are predicted by the support vector machine. So that's one approach. Another way to do this is to use a deep learning network and set up a linear classifier, let the linear classifier learn the function of the default within the data. So looking at uh, uh, different variables in the junk bond market. Let it uh, look at all the different features and then see if we can find correlation in the data. And so a lot of the statistics that I realized with like covariance is looking to see if there's variation in the data. If, if we can find things that are tightly correlated, because if we can find things that are tightly correlated, that we can study those features and make more accurate uh, predictions. And so uh, it's this discovery of these multiple variables working together uh, to find this correlation that will give you this high degree of accuracy that's very interesting. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to the time where we have these visual systems that uh, we could just either through natural language talk to the neural net and uh, tell it in a visual with visual system what we're looking for and then it can pull in you know a lot but say it pulls in you know a thousand column data set in other words too much data for us to intellectually absorb I mean we I guess we could look at maybe a couple hundred variables learn what those couple hundred variables are and uh, and then uh, uh, decide if uh, we wanted uh, if we want to uh, utilize any of those variables and if we do then uh, uh, we would uh, then utilize that those variables to um, uh, 
make our predictions. So anyway, that's our some thoughts on deep learning and the junk bond market. Well, why is the junk bond market so important to consider? You know, we, we saw junk bond markets melt down under Milken, and we thought, you know, hey, what this is what's going on in this junk bond market? Well, today the reason why it's a big deal is pensions are tied to the junk bond market. Uh, we've had Japan and many other large companies investing trillions of dollars in the junk bond market and the seeking faster growth. So the Fed dropped interest rates, keeping those interest rates extremely low. We've had extremely large government debt in the tens of trillions of dollars. And so we have such low interest rates that uh, they started chasing income-based investments at the expense of risk. Uh, trying to capitalize on more short-term earnings. So that became kind of the behavior of the pension fund. And this infusion of money into the junk bond markets has allowed companies to grow extremely fast. So there's lots of availability to liquid funds. So they were growing uh, their companies, borrowing this debt, and there was a lot of debt that they could borrow. And so the economy heated up, the, you know, the stock market increased to over 26,000, and we saw a lot of uh, growth that was being facilitated by the increase in the money that was available to corporations to grow. But at the same time, we had Corona come along and we saw large stimulus packages being passed by government. We saw a lot of excess debt. And we've been asking ourselves, when are the defaults coming? And uh, because of that increased risk, um, I think we can model that in uh, statistically and we can make those predictions because money either if you keep increasing the money supply you you're going to have inflation and inflation and growth economic growth have to go hand in hand in order for it to be tolerated otherwise your currency becomes worthless and um, then you have collapse and you move into depression economics well I've said since 2011 we really have been moved into depression economics that um, that the huge amount of money supply has weakened the currency and uh, and it's time to repudiate that debt, which Trump said he was going to do, and and uh, get us back into you know liquidate the bad investments, and then get us back onto a more solid currency foundation, and uh, stabilize the banking system. So we saw the the TARP bailouts and 
money going to the different banks through the TARP bailouts. We also saw um, the when they did the audit that a lot of the money went to a lot of different organizations that didn't make sense, that, that weren't even related to banks. And so I just think that uh, those type of bailouts, even though the politicians will say they're so necessary and their survival is, is so critical, is I, I think that it's better to quickly liquidate, when you're in trouble, quickly liquidate your assets, pay off your debts, um, and then start again. Because if you were a business, that's what you would do. If there was a downturn, you would look at um, what, what are your major costs, material costs, labor costs, and then you would have to downsize to adjust those for those costs and then um, make sure that your expenditures did not exceed your income. <clears throat> because by definition, if your expenditures are exceeding your income, then you have to borrow into the future. And if you cannot borrow into the future, then you can't be in business because the whole definition of being in business is to is to turn a profit. So uh, the, the, those government policies that are behaving that way uh, seem to be seem to be that the, the, the problematic, I would say. They're, they're going to be create big problems in the future. And so we live in a time that, uh, that we can hear the word bankruptcy. Like one of the four horsemen was one of the four horsemen's title was bankruptcy. We saw it in the Great Depression in the 40s. And I think we could see that again in the 2000s, the return of depression economics, because there is a day of uh, reconciliation that needs to occur, a reckoning day where bad debts have to be liquidated. And we have too much national debt as it is, so we have to liquidate that national debt to maintain our sovereignty. So that's the, the logic there. Well, anyway, the, so that's why the junk bond market matters. You know, we might say, well, what would be the implication of the junk bond market meltdown? I think it would affect money markets. I think it will affect uh, commercial paper. As commercial paper gets dried up, uh, you're, you're going to see companies who borrow money on a daily basis having problems that uh, they can't... Uh, they can't, uh, you know, finance their day-to-day -day operations for through either overnight borrowing of money or or uh, weekend borrowing of money. This borrowing of money will get tighter, and uh, and so we'll see a move towards higher prices in commodities and uh, land prices will go up. Well, the question is, is will real estate prices stay high? Will uh, commercial real estate prices stay high? And I think, you know, 
there's already some anticipation that there's going to be correction in the retail markets and the commercial space. And so, you know, people will be investing into the larger companies. So the larger companies with deeper resources, they have the ability to power through this and they will uh, be able to continue to grow. But as more, the paradox will be is as the smaller businesses start to decline due to uh, lack of demand or supply, then that will affect the larger businesses that depend on the smaller businesses to innovate and produce. And so the whole system could start to contract. That's a scenario we don't like to see because that means that there are more people that have unemployment and uh, you have more people that cannot make their mortgage payments. And so that level of, of pain uh, can spread through the system. And so then you'll start watching uh, interest rates start to climb again. And the reason why they have to climb is uh, it has to offset the effects of inflation. The so interest rate has to offset the effects of inflation and they have to offset the effects of uh, defaults. So it doesn't really makes sense to inflate the money and uh, you know we I feel like we've been inflating our money supply inflation at about 6.5 percent that's about the same inflation rate as China and it would make sense that we would be inflating at that level but sustained inflation will only lead to higher interest rates so the so that, that uh, higher interest rates then slow growth. The fact that we have very low interest rates right now would suggest that we have high growth. And had it not been for Corona, we would say our, our economy was the best it's ever been. Uh, low unemployment, high growth, good wages. But it's still interesting to me now what the middle income wage is, which is $130,000 to be middle income. So that would mean that I'm way below what middle income is. And so I'm having to, you know, put away more money for retirement and uh, working harder to pay off my debts and stay out of debt even though I'm making more money than I probably have ever made before in my life. It's just due to the fact that it costs more today because products have increased in price and so it costs more in your utilities, in your food, in your electricity, in your water, in your sewer. Those costs um, have taken away more money in disposable income. So that takes me back to um, 
well, how do you survive if the junk mark, bond market uh, collapses? Well, I think the way you survive is that uh, you have investments in commodities. Those are real assets. You have, uh, you have low debt. And uh, you stay out of the stock market. And you stay out of the uh, money markets. And you move to commodities. That's what I. That's my strategy in depression economics: is to be heavy in commodities because there are people in the Great Depression that survived very well, and the way they did it is that they found the commodities that were still being traded, and they utilized those trades on those commodities to make money. And that makes sense. That's the way the world works, is that during depression economics, uh, you buy, you can buy bonds because the bonds will have a higher yield. So they, they will have a higher yield, but their price will be down, decline. So they'd be bargained to buy with the higher yield. The only risk behind really high yield is the reason, the same reasoning as what happened with Greece is that you could buy these uh, bonds that were being subsidized where other countries were buying them. You could buy them and the prices were inflating and then they sold them. And so there were people that, investors that made billions of dollars off of those moves in short-term gains. But uh, if you were looking at fixed assets, the risk between a high high yield bond would be whether or not the government would have the ability to make those payments when those bonds came due. So a bond is like an IOU. It uh, it measures you have a you have a a certain rate that you'll pay. There's a discount rate and. Uh, and then there's a maturity rate. So if you if you um, if it matures at a thousand dollars, you buy it at a discount. Of, let's say nine hundred and fifty. Then you would make when it uh, for let's say ten years, then you would make fifty dollars on that thousand dollars. And so you would also could do some comparison, like if you sold it partially through its maturity then there would be a remainder amount that the bond would be worth. And so then that would factor in, um, in its price. So there's a lot of thought that has to go into, um, what you're willing to pay for that bond based on which way you feel that the interest rates will be moving. So if interest rates are going up and you want to, um, buy a bond that has a higher interest rate to get more earnings that you may be willing to pay more money for that bond um, but it can also go the other way if you have a high price bond and the bond prices are dropping then you may be willing to sell that bond capitalize on the gains on that bond. 
So there's lots of uh, factors you have to consider when you're buying bonds. And it's a huge market. It's the 150 trillion plus dollar market. It's enormous. And, uh, and, the, and all of the banks run on the, the bond market. So that's the challenge of and I, and I imagine that we'll see, you know, more of the discussion of the junk bond market as uh, as things uh, become more destabilized and become more of an issue.